It's our responsibility. Yes, we use the madrasa, the malana sahab, madrasa ustad, but we can't blame. We can't put all the blame on them. They should do the best. But we as parents have the response. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah says that if a child goes wrong, at some level the parent has to be to blame. Right? So we have to deal with it. This is our, this is our kasht. Right? This is our crop that we are told to, to be responsible for. That's why one of the principles I would say is that there should be nothing taboo that you can't discuss at home. And you have to create that opening. You have to ask the children, what did they discuss? Did they discuss this? Did they discuss that? Um, is that ever a discussion? You know, do you hear weird things from your friends? What do you think about this? You, we need to be abreast of this because all of this stuff is discussed. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen Wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Wa baraka wa sallama tasliman Kathiran ila yawmiddin Amma ba'd قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد ولا تهنوا ولا تحزنوا وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين وقال تعالى إنما يتقبل الله من المتقين صدق الله العظيم So our dear brothers and dear sisters, dear ulama, our dear organizers, um, Allah Ta'ala be praised for allowing us to be here on this evening and this is a very very important topic so I, uh, about three years ago, I wrote a, a book on marriage after being married for over 20 years and dealing with people's marriage issues for about 20 years. I thought, let's write a book because I think after 20 years, I thought I was qualified to write a book about marriage. Now people are saying you need to write a book about bringing up children. So what I'm waiting for, I've got two children over 20, but I'm waiting for them to get married and then be settled in marriage for at least two years, then I can say, inshallah, right? Because I think that is the major, major, our, our job as parents never ends, but at least one of the major hurdles, one of the biggest hurdles after all the small, small, small hurdles to get them to the right age and then to get them married and settled. Then I think a lot of people eventually sign a, uh, they, they eventually breathe a sight of relief. Right. There can still be issues after that, but Allah protect us if we've done the right job then, and we've made the right choice, then inshallah we should have the right thing. So that's what I'm waiting to do so I can write a book about bringing up children as well. You have to be qualified to write these kind of things. So, ma uh, just like marriage, bringing up children is very, very, very uh, complicated. It's very difficult for any one person to discuss every single aspect that you could face when bringing up children because every family has a different dynamic and environment. Some things are found in certain families and other things are not found in certain families. Um, some families have stable marital relationships and some don't have stable marital relationships. Some have extended families, there's grandparents who are involved, brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts who are involved, and in some cases they're not involved. All of this creates a different challenge. Sometimes we have families that they have a very, very good system in their own house. But their children, they have relatives who have a different ethos in their house. 
They're, your own, they're our own brothers or sisters' children, our own cousins, but they have a slightly different culture in their homes. They might be more strict, they might be more liberal. Now, it's very difficult to have your children so protected as such or in just one environment that you can't send them anywhere else because you're scared. I've had so many cases. I don't want to send them to my brother's house or my sister's house. Why? Because they let them play around um, without control, for example. They're not as strict. That's why it's so challenging and everybody's situation is different. Everybody's situation is different. That's why I say that we should start praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from advance. That, Ya Allah, always make my surrounding environment of my own place, my own home, my own family, and the people who are closest to me, make that conducive for your love and for, for your faith. Because if that's not, it becomes a bigger challenge. The reason is that children, when they, when they are born and then they start learning, they're like sponges. They literally just take everything in. Some internalize it, some ignore stuff, others they internalize and they will say something to you and others won't say anything but they will internalize it, they process it in their brain, anything that they see. The way it works is that usually children benefit from three main environments. Uh, children as they grow up, the reason I am what I am because I took from multiple environments multiple sources I'm not only what I learned from my parents I'm not only what I learned from my teachers I also learned from my society I learned from people I uh, visited I looked at people I saw maybe television and social media in those days there was no social media but now there's social media everything I see this creates a certain imprint certain impact a certain source of knowledge is provided I learned from neighbors, I learned from people in my community, I learned from the children in the park, I learned from the advertisements that I saw outside, I learned from my school teacher and from my school colleagues, Muslims and non-Muslims. These are all the different places and there's many, many more. Before there was no social media, now there is. Before everybody was quite protective over who would come into their house, they would never let a stranger into their house and be alone. Uh, you know, with your child alone in a room, but now many people can't help it. In fact, that's the best way to babysit and it's for free now. You can allow strangers in your ho home and they will babysit your children while you can indulge in whatever you want to do. And it's for free. You just need an iPad. You just need a phone. You just need an, a device and they can entertain themselves for hours. So we're living in a slightly, you know, in a very, very different world. So before, the main places you would learn from was the house, the home environment. Number two was the school that you went to, Muslim school, non-Muslim school, secular school, whatever school it was. Number three was just everything else outside. That means your neighbors, people in the park, uh, when you go shopping, the various different things that you see there, the advertisements out uh, around, the way people speak and uh, on the roads and, and so on. Now you've got a fourth environment, which is the social media, right? which 50 years ago, 40 years ago, people didn't have. And that's created a big difference, a big, biggest challenge. Out of all of these environments, which is the most important environment, you think? The home. The home. That's the only one you can control. You can't control the society outside. 
The school you can control to a certain degree depending on what's available. Is there a good Islamic school available? Not every Muslim school is a good Islamic school, right? Whether academically or Islamically, there's, challenge, there's challenges at every level there is. That, but that's life, that's life. I'm not trying to paint a picture of such bleakness to, make, to create despair. That's life. These are the lives. This is not paradise. This is our test. And that's the way I look at it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has asked us to ask Him for help and assistance. And whoever He makes it easy for, then alhamdulillah, it's easy. I know many people who are brought up without any Islamic school. Yes, they went to maktabs, but the normal school, there was in a secular school. Right? And alhamdulillah, they've come out fine. Now that's become a bit more challenging because of the different agendas, the newer agendas of what they want to teach. That is totally against our religion in, in a number of cases sometimes as well. It just creates another challenge and it just pushes us to realize that we're going to have to work harder. We've made this country our home. This is our home. We've not made it. I mean, I didn't make this country my home. It is my home. Can't help it. I've moved. I've lived in four or five other continents for sustained, at least three other continents for sustained periods, like several months to a year. In the African continent, in the Asian continent, I've lived there for two years. And in the American continent, I've lived there for eight years. And at the end of the day, what you have to realize is that if, where you're born is usually your home. And I feel very comfortable here. So this is my home. Some of you made this, if you're an older generation, you made this your home. But this is my home and this is my home. I mean, that's what it is. Allah put me here and I need to make it a better place. That's our job. It's easy to run away. Well, it's not that easy. Where will you go to? Everywhere there's a challenge in this world. So that's why the idea is not to create despair, but just consciousness. I just had a discussion with a group of scholars in, in Toronto, Canada, just a few days ago. And uh, interestingly, what it is, is that there's a lot of challenges outside and we and our children need to create an environment where these challenges are dealt with and our children and us, we know exactly what to do. That we have our principles. The main thing is principles that we have to hold on to. There's going to be changes that will come about in the world. Many changes have already come. There'll be many, many more changes as technology advances. The virtual world is upon us. The meta world is upon us. That's only going to make it more complicated. The graphics are only going to become more graphic. The games are only going to become more so-called realistic. And there's alter egos, there's alter lives, there's alternate lives and so on. And it's only going to get more and more complicated. We need to have principles. Without principles, we can't survive anywhere. And Muslims are people of principles. That's why if you look at the Islamic political system, just as an example, and there's many things like this. Islamic political system, Islam doesn't provide a one model that you must follow in, uh, in terms of the exact details of how it must be run, of every single department and so on. What Islam does do though, because the Prophet ﷺ, he did not name the next khalif, the next leader. He did not name him, gave lots of indications, gave lots and lots of indications and signs, but he didn't name them. Abu Bakr became the next khalif. When Abu Bakr was about to pass away, he named the next khalif. So the next khalif was chosen by, by the outgoing one. So we have that model. Then Umar he did something totally different. He left it to six people or seven. Uh, six people, but a seven person as a tiebreaker to decide among the six which one it's going to be. 
he left it among six people. So you have multiple models. But what you do have in Islam, which the Prophet has left very clearly for us, are certain principles, limits, boundaries, guidelines of how the system should work. So you can create whatever model that you want, whether it be a type of a democracy, a type of a monarchy, right? As long as it fulfills the Islamic principles and abides by the laws and limits, it's Islamic. It's Islamic. So that's why if you look at the teachings of Islam, it leaves a lot beyond the absolute basic principles and the guidelines and the boundaries, it leaves the rest to your culture, whatever's allowed in there. And what the way you want to do is a lot of flexibility. So, likewise, when it comes to bringing up children and leading our life, there are fundamental guidances of taqwa and love of Allah and obedience and harams and prohibitions and responsibilities and so on. They must be abided by. Otherwise, after that, you can wear what you want within that guideline. You can live how you want and live your life and that's that's what allows it a Pathan home from one place in Pakistan is very different from a home from Punjab background that's very different from Sindhi there are similarities a lot of people think Pakistani all Pakistanis are the same that's not true all Indians are the same absolutely not true multiple cuisines multiple languages multiple ways of doing things personality difference the people in northern india subcontinent are very different from the people of the southern subcontinent they're actually ethnically different at the top you've got the indo um, aryans and the south you have the dravidians their nature is different some are calmer than our northerners uh, definitely gujarat and up that includes uh, much of Bangladesh and all of Pakistan, we're generally louder. You go down south towards Kerala and, uh, um, what do you call it, Bangalore and so on, they're, they're a bit calmer usually. Right? You get the good and bad in everybody, depending on how they... Uh, but there's a lot of difference. A lot of people from outside say, all oh, Pakistanis are the same. All Indian, I mean, they're not the same. We've got a lot of difference. Alhamdulillah, nothing wrong with that. But what I'm trying to say is that this is a challenge. So I'm going to mention a few things uh, regarding children upbringing. And what I want you to do, both the sisters as well and the brothers, is that any questions that come into your mind, just remember it. And then when I open it up for questions, because I'm trying to learn more. I can't cover everything in a short half an hour, 45 minute talk. I'd like to hear your questions so I can then try to answer it. And if I don't know the answer, I'll say so. So that's, that's what I want to do. So number one. La ilaha illallah. I want to start off with two stories, just to set the scene. Two stories, okay, brothers, little kids. I'm going to tell you two stories. Okay. First story. There's a child. He just started high school, secondary school. Uh, how old do you have to be to start secondary school? About 12 years old, right? I don't understand the year system. Is in year eight or year four or five? I'm not. I don't get that. I just know the ages, right? It's about 11, 11 and a half to 12, right? That's when you start. So he was about 11 and a half to 12, started going to secondary school. Now, his, uh, his mom had told him uh, that you have to pray dhuhr 
uh, salat because it happens in school time. By the time you come home, it's going to be finished because it's winter time, right? So that's why you better pray at school. And she gave him certain ideas. The child one day comes home from school and she says to this child, that, uh, this kid, uh, did, you pray at mother, uh, did you pray at school? So he said, no, I didn't. Uh, should you be happy or sad? Should be sad, mashallah. Who should be? Who says they should be happy instead? You you say it should be happy, right? This guy's looking at you in amazement, like what's wrong with you? Like why are you happy for? Look at this guy. He's just like totally like what's wrong? No, it's alright. No, you're happy as well. Yeah. I, I I when I heard the story, I felt the same. I was actually happy. I was actually very happy. He didn't say like I didn't pray. I don't care. I don't want to pray. He said, No man, I didn't. I didn't get to pray. I was very, very happy. Why? Because he told the truth. He didn't have to tell the truth. Why did he tell the truth? Why didn't he just make it up? Oh, I prayed. She's not going to go and check. She can't go and maybe even ask the school because I don't know what they'd say, that you're uh, extremist you are or whatever. You understand? So he told the truth. So now she's like, why didn't you? He said, well, I didn't find an empty classroom. On another occasion... This kid, uh, it was Jumu'ah day. He said, did you pray Jumu'ah? He said, no, I missed my Jumu'ah today. I said, how did you miss your Jumu'ah? He said, well, uh, I was going and my friend, I met him and he said, wait for me. He went to do wudu in the toilets. And then I'm waiting, waiting. And then suddenly he's not there anymore. He left from another exit. He prayed Jumu'ah and I'm still waiting for him. Right. So I got there too late because in school they have a very short Jumu'ah because they have very short break. Uh, one ch kid that I know is finished now, he's finished university, everything. His whole time that he went to high school, he wore wudu socks. They're, they're expensive. You know how much wudu socks are, right? They're like 20 pounds, 18 to 20 pounds, rather than a 1 to 2 pound pair of normal socks. right? He had multiple socks because that would just make it easy for him to do wudu at school. That was all prepared with the parents and a discussion. Right, to facilitate. Can you see where, what we're looking at here? This one example is just to give us an example of communication, planning, God consciousness. God consciousness. Taqwa. Which means they recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, that's the first story. The, the second story is this. I, I was uh, an imam in America for about several years. I used to teach the older children in our community and my wife used to teach the younger children, like less than 10. I used to teach the over 10. So there was some local, uh, a local family who had not, eventually they sent their two children who were maybe seven and eight or seven and nine or something like that, or six and eight, around that age, two brothers. And they were in my wife's class. So my wife was discussing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The attributes of Allah. Allah is the greatest. Allah is the most powerful. Allah can do whatever He wants. Nobody can stand in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Nobody can fight with Allah. Allah is the strongest. Do you know what happened? One of those new kids, they suddenly shouted, Power Rangers! You know Power Rangers? Because in his mind, in their mind, Power Rangers was the most powerful entity that they knew. From the, is it a cartoon or something? Yeah. 
and and you know so they've been watching that so for them in their mind the most powerful entity was power rangers so when they heard the description they just immediately connected to power rangers would you do that no. would you think of power rangers if somebody talked about the greatest and so on okay now let me give you another example how old were these children seven or eight right there's another kid who's four years old, I think. I think he was about four or five maximum. They, he went with his family for the first time to the beach. This was in California. It was a halal beach, right? And you just suddenly see this immense ocean in front of them. This immense, massive ocean, Pacific Ocean. And you know, when you go and you just see that huge expanse of water, nobody asked him anything. He just suddenly said, Allah made this. Why did he say that? He must have just thought because he'd been taught, you know, he'd been discussing Allah, he'd been taught about Allah. So when he saw they must have put two and two together, nobody can make something. Only Allah can make this. Not Power Rangers, not Grayskull, not Incredible Hulk, not Scooby Dooby Doo. Right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We've been told, I mean, as I said, the Sharia gives us guidelines. The first words to enter into the ears of the baby should be what? Al the, the, the adhan, the full whack, the adhan. That's why I would suggest that if a woman finds herself in hospital, she's just given birth, don't wait for the Malana Saab to come or for your husband to come. Just do it yourself if it's going to be a while. You want the first words there. In fact, I was so careful that I spoke to the nurses in advance because they had this soft music playing. I said, I've got a bit of a ritual that I want to take care of and uh, I want you, uh, you know, I'd like to request you that, you know, I don't want any other sound. I don't even want you to tell me if it's a boy or girl. I don't want you to say anything because there's some things I need to say first. So I just want you to give the baby to me as soon as it's born, wrap it up and just give it to me and then there's a certain, you know, ceremony I need to do. So mashallah, they, they played ball with us, you know, they, so they gave me, and then I just said the first word I wanted in my children's, and I did this with all of them, is Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. I want to give them a good start in life, that's the minimum I can do, right? If I can give my child a good start in life by first thing going into the ears is Allah, then hopefully when they die, the last words on his lip will be Allah as well. When a baby comes into this world, it comes from the realm of Allah from uh, the abode of souls where they've had an experience with Allah. So when they come in, we just remind them of Allah as the first thing. Then what I did was, after the adhan, I had a tape player, a small Walkman in those days. Now you can do it on your phone. Those days you had a Walkman. And I put Sheikh Ghamidi on and I remember him whimpering, like crying. Like, and then I put the Sheikh Ghamidi on and that beautiful sound. And mashallah, he stopped crying. And I just wanted the first words, you know, the first hours, in fact, Quran, Quran, Quran. I think it's benefited him. I was so particular, in my, I'm not as strict anymore, but I was so particular in the beginning that with, with my elders, we wouldn't go into a shop if there was music in there. One of us would stand outside, the other one would go in and buy whatever was needed and they'd come out. I didn't want him to listen to any music while he was growing up. I didn't want him to hear any junk. Because I think that's beneficial. Everything you do is going to pay off eventually. 
It's not, you're not wasting your time. Everything you, don't go to extreme. Like, I don't want him to see anybody. You know, subhanAllah. You know, you know what I'm saying? You can't go extreme with this, but you, de- you do need to do the best because that's our job, our responsibility to give them the best option in life. That's why, subhanAllah, because the mother is the first place of education for any child, more than the father. The father is as well, but usually the father is going out earning money and you know, trying to bring food on the table and, 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 and so on. Right? Hopefully that's what he's doing. right? The mother's job is usually with the child, feeding the child, nursing the child, and much closer to the child. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given that amazing relationship with the mother that the child... You know, you know if the father starts telling the child off, where does the child go? Runs away, right? And if the mother starts telling the child off, where does the child go, the infant? You know, if there's a little two-year-old kid, right, and the mother shouts at the child, what, where does that child go? Well, for you, mashallah. Usually goes back to the mother. It's like, hugs the mother even further. Man, her mother's shouting at him and he goes back to the mother. Subhanallah. And if the father shouts, then they go to the mother. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes. But most of the time it's like this. Right? So now, do you know a friend of mine, he said, and it's a really interesting said, he said that a righteous mother can give a 15 to 20 year head start to their child on the path of Allah compared to a non-righteous woman. That if, you, if, the, if the child can have a righteous mother, then they're already set up on the path of Allah. Because the child is going to be under the parents, at least for the first 15 years minimum. And the mother is constantly guiding from the time she's nursing him and feeding him and changing him and putting him to bed and all the rest of it. They're already setting them on the right path. If the mother and father aren't like that, and she might be nursing the child, but she's watching EastEnders. That's finished now, I think. Netflix. She's catching up on uh, Lollywood um, drama. Right. Lollywood is the Pakistani version of Hollywood. Right. And this Bollywood is the Indian version. So she's watching drama. Baracha drama. Right. In which there's all sorts of stuff going on. You can see what I'm saying. I'm not giving any fatwa here. I'm just telling you to think about these things. There's a big difference between that. There's one, whenever she's feeding, she's saying Bismillah and she starts. And when she's feeding, she's saying, she's reading Quran or she's doing some dhikr. Or, uh, there's going to be a big difference between that and somebody who's gossiping with their friends about all sorts of things. Just points to think about. Because we're setting them on the path. This doesn't mean that a father can go and do whatever he wants. He needs to contribute in a positive way to all of this. Both need to do it. Children learn from both and both are important for children. Both are very important for children. You can't have a lopsided relationship. If a child is brought up by just the mother, there's going to be an imbalance. Likewise, uh, more seldom, if a child is brought up just by the father with no mother figure there, that's going to be tough. That's going to be psychologically a non-balanced uh, upbringing. We need both the mother and father. They both need to be on the same vibe. Unfortunately, what's happening is, Many, many of us are being caught up in the whole liberal attitude of the West, right? So 
This is something that I just discussed. As I said I was discussing in Toronto, and uh, this was an observation by one of the people. He says that so many uh, parents have already embraced the liberal framework that they abide by themselves. And they make their children predisposed. Sorry, children, that's a bit of a complicated word, right? They make their children predisposed to accepting any liberal ideas. They'll have no problem with certain sexual vices that Muslims see as problems that are being promoted nowadays because they have liberal attitude, they're willing to accept. It's like, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? We're seeing that now come into our maktabs. What's wrong with those relationships? What's wrong with those which in Islam they're not condoned at all? They have seen no problem with that because they're brought up to think liberally in that sense. The home should be a place where the children should be able to come and discuss. Because as I said, the home is the main environment out of the four, three or four environments we have. You can't control what goes on in all the other environments, but you should be able to, in the house, be a place where the children can come and literally discuss anything they want. Nothing should be taboo to discuss at home. They should feel so comfortable with their parents, at least, or at least with one of them, if not both of them, at least like with the mother or the father, that they can say, at school we were discussing gender fluidity. We were discussing, the teacher was discussing um, Judaism, Christianity, uh, atheism. They should be able to come home and get an answer, get guidance. You might say, maktab mein kya karte phir? That's a secondary source. The primary source is always the house. If you can't find a good teacher for your children, it's still our responsibility. We're not going to tell Allah, I couldn't find a good teacher. Well, why didn't you go and find a good teacher for yourself first? You see what I'm saying? It's our responsibility. Yes, we use the madrasa, the malana sahab, madrasa ustad, but we can't blame. We can't put all the blame on them. They should do the best. But we as parents have the reason. Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah says that if a child goes wrong, at some level the parent has to be to blame. Right? So we have to deal with it. This is our, this is our kasht. Right? This is our crop that we are told to, to be responsible for. That's why one of the principles I would say is that there should be nothing taboo that you can't discuss at home. And you have to create that opening. You have to ask the children, what did they discuss? Did they discuss this? Did they discuss that? Um, is that ever a discussion? You know, do you hear weird things from your friends? What do you think about this? You, we need to be abreast of this because all of this stuff is discussed. There's some parents who pull their children out of sex education, you know, when they're going to have it in school so that, you know, there's no inappropriateness. But the problem is the next day the child knows everything because their friends tell them about it from a secondhand source. So you better discuss this at home, you know, in some level or the other. We can't have it where. We keep, if you've got brothers and sisters and the sister is not praying or the mother is not praying because she's on her monthly period, right? That you keep telling the children every month that, oh, your mom is sick. That's why she's not praying. Menstruation is health. It's not sickness. It's healthy to have menstruation. What do you say then? You don't have to advertise it. Because remember, if everybody's sitting down, right? And then suddenly it's namaz time. It's prayer time. And the boys go to pray. The father goes to pray, but the mother's not praying. You think like, yeah, namaz neighbor, what's wrong with her? Why isn't she praying? Mom, you didn't pray. Children are very smart about these things. Why didn't she pray? Well, a simple thing is that, you know, women, girls, after they reach a certain age, 
Allah lets them off for like five, seven, eight, nine days. Because they go through some bodily changes in their stomach. So that's why they don't have to pray in that, in that time. So that you know. Right? You understand? Simple. I mean, we've never had any boys saying that's discrimination. Why can't boys do that as well? Alhamdulillah, we don't have that discrimination yet. Right? But you see what I'm saying? It's very important. We need our homes to be such that the children feel comfortable to be in the house rather than anywhere else. Yes, they don't mind being in other places, but if our ch children hate being in the house, they'd rather be with their friends somewhere, there's a problem. Or if they like to be in the house, but not with everybody else, they like to be in their room on a gadget, door closed, that's another problem. Again, I'm giving guidelines. That means there's something going on. We're not making it exciting. We're not making it where they feel. There's a study that they did. Uh, these children in the park, 13, 14 year olds, right? And one of them comes up with a can of spray. And then he says to, the, to one of them, right? How old are you? Um, ten. You're 10. Imagine a kid gives you a can of spray and says, do some graffiti on this building. Would you do it? Do you know what graffiti is? Yeah. He gave it to you and they're all saying that you better do it. Don't be scared. Don't be a chicken. Would you then do it? What would you do? You would put it down. But then they're all like on your case. There's so much pressure on you that if you don't do it, you can't be with us. Right? To be with us, you have to be cool. You have to be like this. You better do it. Otherwise, you're a chicken. You can't be with us. Then what would you do? Would you just stand there then and just listen to it? See, this is important. What do you think? You're older than him. What's your, how old are you? 14. A perfect age. What would you do? Like, just be honest. You're not doing it. I'm just wondering what you would do if you're in that case. Because we have to teach everybody, you know, what would you do? You'd give it back. And then what, just stand there or what? You see, the only way you can save yourself is go. Because if you stood there, they'll just keep on your case. So what they notice is many of them actually did it. Because it's, it's what you call this is peer pressure. What you call is you don't want to do something. It's against what you've been taught and what you believe in. But because everybody's pressuring you, you feel like I want to fit in. That's why I do it. You feel like you want to fit in. You want to be their friends because they're cool. You think they're cool, right? And you want to be cool. Maybe they've got a gang. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's why you'll end up doing it. They said that the people who were successful are those who walked away. Why did they walk away? Because they knew that they didn't need these people. So what if they were not going to be their friends anymore? They had a house to go to that they knew was welcoming and warm and friendly. But if you don't have that, they want to belong somewhere else. But if they have that belonging at home, then regardless of what, you know, inshallah, they will think, I don't need this. I've got a decent home to go back to. I've got somewhere to go to. And of course, they might have good friends to go to. This is big peer pressure. So the successful one once, uh, what's your name? Muhammad. The successful one, one were the ones who were like, I'm not doing this, and they walked off. He didn't care what happened afterwards. Do you understand? That's what you call peer pressure. It's tough to dress a certain way and to be a certain way. You wouldn't believe it. But I'll tell you how I was affected once. My mum used to wear the face covering 
Allah bless her, reward her. She's passed away now. May Allah give her place in Jannatul Firdaus. And I don't know how old I was. Maybe I was about 9 or 10. And she wanted to take me out to buy shoes. And I don't know what came over me. I said, I'm not going to come. I said, why not? Because you wear niqab. I started feeling embarrassed. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, being, I'm just being honest with you. Alhamdulillah, after that, I went to the madrasa and all of that, that shaitan just left, alhamdulillah. All of that shaitan left. I remember once they went for hajj and my uncle and auntie, my uncle was a mufti, right? And he came to stay with us. They just recently got married or something and they had no children of their own. They came to look after us. So when the day my mom is coming, to, uh, coming back, my parents are coming back from hajj, uh, they wanted all of us to dress in Islamic clothing. I refused. I refused. I said, no, I'm not going to wear that. You know, my brothers, I think they did. I didn't. Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala took that shaitan away. That I don't feel like that. I'm very bold and very confident now in the way I've never, you know, had to dress any other way after this, after that. So these are challenges that you will go through. These are challenges that you will go through. You have to do something like that. A lot of the time I've noticed that if you've got a child who is very stubborn about something, then a lot of the time you can't help them directly because there's a distrust. They view you in a certain way already. So for you to say anything is suspicious. It, the only thing I found to be beneficial, as in my case, was to change the scene, to go somewhere else that was decent and that, re, that also emphasized the same points, but it was coming from somewhere else. I've seen this in cases where they've got a son or daughter, they're kind of not on track. They can tell them what they want. They've got a righteous uh, environment at home, but it just sometimes just doesn't work. The only way to do it is to get them in a, a similar ethos somewhere else. In one case, they sent uh, one of them to a madrasa. Uh, you can try to find a new set of friends, whether that be in another country, in another area or whatever. When they see the same thing, because a lot of children, what they think uh, in some, uh, what do you call it, religious homes, is that it's only my parents who are like this because my friends' parents, they let them wear what they want, they let them do what they want. Right? That's why it's very important to have relationships. If you don't have that in your family, because they say, well, all my cousins, they don't do it. They don't wear hijab. They don't have to pray or whatever. Then you better find some friends that you develop or invite them over for food. You go to their house or whatever so that you can actually show them that you're not the only one in the world. That this is not some zulm on you. And this is not some oppression on you. Giving ideas. Children need to see others doing it. That's why there's some family programs that take place. And I think we need to do more of them. Where they see other children doing the same thing. MashaAllah in our local masjid what they've done is they've had this... What is it called? Fajr nights or Fajr mornings or Fajr nights. So over these holidays, they've enticed the children, encouraged the children to come for Fajr. And uh, your name gets written down that you've come for all of these Fajrs and you're going to get tomorrow's a price giving ceremony. So whoever's prayed Fajr for all of these days in the masjid over the holidays, they're going to get a price. That is something that, you know, you see that encouraged. Now somebody might say, but that's not uh, sincerity. Well, we get them used to that then the sincerity will come afterwards inshallah we're going to have to be more creative because a lot of the countries we came from there was at least some muslim ethos there 
in the air there was Islam somewhere or the other. But here we have to create sort of these ideas. So we have to really think a lot uh, uh, for these things. Uh, social media is a big thing. That's why parents are going to have to be knowledgeable about the way social media works. You have to know who your children's friends are. You have to know who your children's friends are and who they're visiting online and who they're speaking to online, who they're playing games with. You know, if you want to play Fortnite, you can play with players in other places. You better know who you're playing with because there's lots of random guys that try to come in and then, you know, there's lots of, it gets really bad. It could, Allah Ta'ala hifazat kare, Allah Ta'ala protect, you could get grooming and things like that. So you have to be aware. For example, when I was teaching in America, there was a big hype about Harry Potter. Everybody was reading Harry Potter books. This was before the movies. Everybody was reading about Harry Potter. It's like, what's the fuss? Why is everybody reading and going on about it? So I read one of them. I was like, I need to find out. And it was, mashallah, very, very gripping. It's a very, very attractive story. I never got the chance to read all the rest. But I had to read one just to understand what the hype is about. You have to stay abreast of this. What my wife does is that she'll check the books that they're reading right now and just skim through them. Just to see if they're at the right level because uh, books are getting a lot more crazier these days than they used to be before. right? So you have to just stay abreast with all of these things and just do your best. If you don't do your best, you, you know, the, then when they grow up, you know, initially it's easy, but when they become teenagers, the relationships, bec uh, you have to constantly adjust your relationship. You can't use the same strategies when they're less than 12, 13 for after 12, 13. You have to adjust. Parents have to be flexible. So, uh, th this is, again, I'm just giving some principles here. You have to be very flexible. And number three, right, you can't win all the battles. You can't win all the battles. You do your best. You pick the main battles. Otherwise, you'll just be, you'll just destroy the whole thing. I would say that the relationship between a TJ, teenager and their parents, in some cases, is like, a relationship where they're both tied by a thread and it's a tug of war with a thread like a hair strand. If you pull too much, you're going to break it. But you can't let go too much either. So it's constantly back and forth, back and forth. Right? You have to be clever about the things that you do. And ask for guidance. Ask others who've done this. I don't think there's enough practical books about this. There's lots of books about bringing up children with just the hadith and the Quran giving you the general guidances, but we need more examples. Just a few other things. I think one of the things that benefited me to choose the path of becoming a hafiz and alim and so on is, well, one could be because both my grandfathers were hafiz of the Quran, my father was a alim, my uncle was a mufti, and my other uncle is a hafiz, and he just ran in the family. Right, it just ran. That's easy. That might not be your case, but it can become your case for your children, for your children and their grandchildren. You can set that up. Like, uh, one person I know, all of her cousins, brothers, they're all hafiz of the Quran. Like ten, fifteen of them, they're all hafiz of the Quran now. None of the ones, none of her uncles are though. It just became that next generation. However, the main thing I think that got me into this deen and always made me love this deen 
And may Allah continue that. Of course, it's the grace of Allah and somebody's du'as. But I think it was because in my home, the religion was glorified. The faith was respected and honored. When there was somebody who had become Hafiz of the Quran or a big scholar was coming, they were spoken about with respect. Like, look at that guy. He's just become Hafiz of the Quran. MashaAllah. That gives some encouragement. Right? Rather than saying like, um, I don't know why he did his... He, 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 I mean, there's some extreme people. It's like, he wa- they wasted his talent. He should have become a doctor, sir. Man, why can't you do his and doctor? Like you can have that, right? But unfortunately, some cultures we come from, there's a dichotomy between ilm and education as though they can't meet. You either do this or you do that. And mashallah, the modern world, you can do both. I can give you so many examples. I know so many people with masters and PhD degrees and they've also become alim. Want the best for your children. So glorify the deen in your home. Okay, and um, I could say a lot more, but what I'll do is, because I want to leave you questions, is develop consciousness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the house. Allah ki baate khud karo, you know, khub karo in the house. What do you mean by that? You know, you're going to have new clothes, you're going to have delicious dishes and food that's going to happen, right? There's going to be other things that will come about. Every time that happens, you start thanking Allah aloud. One is you tell him, Dua paro. The other one is, we've had a good meal, man. I'm so thankful to Allah that He gives us this. Now when somebody hears somebody constantly thanking Allah for the goods that they have, doesn't the respect of Allah grow? You acknowledge that it comes from Allah. You have, for example, there's somebody who gave us some herbal teas. You know those pakka teas? They're really nice, they are. He gave us, and my son never drinks tea, and then suddenly he just starts drinking, he tasted that cinnamon, there's a cinnamon one in there. I don't know, he got hooked on it. Every day he's having cinnamon, pakka cinnamon tea. So this is why I told him, I said that, you know the brother who gave us this? You need to make dua for him every time you have this tea. And of course you need to thank Allah, but you need to also make dua for the brother. You have to teach them gratitude. Okay, let me give you an example. What's your name, Mr. Black with orange zip? Imad. Imad means the pillar. Right? Imam means reliance and the pillar. Right? So you need to be strong. But tell me, do you have a guy in your class who bothers you, who would like bothers you a lot? Nobody. Do you bother everybody? Okay. Who's got a friend in class who's a bit bothersome? You got one? Yeah. Okay. So how are you going to deal with that guy? Right. Shall I tell you even a better way? Make dua for him that oh Allah sort this guy out. Don't make him bothersome. Because otherwise he's going to be in your class for the next two, three, four, five years and you're constantly going to have to be on your tiptoes with him. Make dua. Oh Allah sort this guy out. Oh Allah sort us out. Make us have a good relationship. Have you ever thought about doing that? Now you do that. And inshallah Allah will accept your du'as. It might take a few days or a few weeks, but you're going to get rewarded for your du'a. And inshallah if that works, it's great. Likewise, if you have some bad neighbor or whatever, and they can't, you can keep swearing at them in front of your children and tell them all bad things and do ghibah, but do some du'a for them. We're going to have to change the way we do things so that 
our children pick this up. Otherwise, they can't learn this anywhere else. They have to pick it up from us. Unless they're very lucky and they find some really inspirational friend or teacher or something. We need to uh, provide them this thing. Raising the name of Allah in the house. Uh, one thing which is really, really important that I found that has benefited us immensely is reading to the children when they're young. From stories of prophets and others. What that does is that it creates a love for books. Because they see the mother or the father reading from a book. so And it's a really interesting story before they go to sleep. Right? They've got a time to think about it. And it's associated to a book. So that when they grow up, until you give them a phone, then it, or Satyanasa, then, then you basically mess everything up. But until then, they love reading books. That's what I experience. And plus those stories at bedtime, young, the stories of the prophets and the sahaba, they are immensely powerful in conveying to them the right kind of manners and conduct and behavior and personalities and role models. We invested in a lot of books. Right? And my wife used to read a lot to them right? until they're like six, seven years or whatever it is and then they just read for themselves now. Right? But that's very, very important to have that relationship. There's lots of other stuff but I think I've said a lot already. And uh, the most important and enduring relationship, marriage, uh, uh, sorry, relationship that you may ever enter, enter into is when you bring a child in this world. That relationship is not an optional relationship. Once a child comes, that's it. With a spouse, you can divorce. But a parent-child relationship is what Allah gives you. And if it's good, it's great. If it's bad, try to make it good. Or do sabr and get reward for it. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy. Income, jobs, friendships, health, and even marriage may come and go. But your role as parents lasts as long as you live. Your children are always going to be your children. Even when you become 70 and they're 50. They're still your children at the end of the day. Right? <coughs> Parenting is probably the most profound responsibility any adult can ever take her on. That's the most difficult responsibility. Because it's constantly changing. The subject of your relationship constantly changes. When they become teenagers, it's a different relationship. And when they become young adults, it's a different relationship. Your responsibility changes. So when they become 17, when they become 18, 19, 20, you have to get them ready for marriage now. Give you, I mean, we're not talking about that right now, but basic. We may teach the, the, the girls to cook and clean, right? And a lot of the time, the guys, the boys, they get scot-free. They don't get taught anything. They just get taught how to make money. What we need to teach them is how to pay bills, how to do small handiwork in the house. This is stuff they're going to have to do when they get married. How to maybe look at how to fix a tap, you know, at least watch, or who to call when you do that, and stuff like that. How to do shopping. Otherwise, they get married, they don't know what they're doing. And then they're blaming each other, totally clueless. Because the parents did not teach them what they needed to do. So remember, responsibility keeps changing. And then after that, when they get married, you need to teach them the realities of marriage. Who else is going to teach them otherwise? They're going to watch movies and figure it out. Or figure the wrong thing out. There's lots to do. Lots to do. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy. And let me stop here.
so that I can take some questions, inshallah. Allah Ta'ala make it easy for us. Bismillah. Shaykh, what advice would you give to those working parents that don't have as much time and energy to spend on children as stay-at-home parents? I would say that, really honestly, look at your income, look at your lifestyle and your needs. Readjust it so that you don't both have to work crazy hours like you do. Let the mother stay at home and look after the children. They need you as the, that's your biggest responsibility. If that means downsizing, if that means having less expensive items, you know, le- uh, using second-hand sofas, not having the latest TV, let that be it because this is a bigger responsibility. Right? That's generally what it is. That's generally what the issue is. Right? Manage your finances and do that. Start with a part-time job. Come down from a full-time to a part-time. You'll have time otherwise. I see that, you see, we teach an ifta course, a mufti course for women as well. And we've seen that the most successful women to complete the course are those who are not married at all yet. They've got no responsibilities and they, it's a full-time job. It's a full-time work. Or those who have children but now they're over 10 years of age. They're in routine. They're at school. So they've got them in school, so they're only studying with us while the children are at school. Because when your child is at home, you need to be there. So give up your job while your children until they're 12, 13, then maybe you can get a job. If you don't do that, you're going to be in trouble. You're, you know, Alhamdulillah, that's an honest question. So the world is not everything. The dunya, 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 yes, you need a certain amount, but you just don't need to waste your time with that. And what advice would you give to parents where one parent is teaching Islamic rules? How do you treat your children equally? Children only for them to be overridden by the other parent. How would you deal with this? That is very complicated. That's why I didn't want to talk about marriage. But when you're, you need to have the right partner because this is a future relationship for the rest of your life, marriage. You need to be on the same wavelength. Otherwise, it's going to be each partner undermining the other the children are going to then get confused. They're going to become unstable in that regard. Or worse still, they'll start uh, using one parent over the other. And that just gets worse and worse. You really need to get counseling sooner than later in your own relationship. This is the, sometimes the problem is that a guy finds a wife or a wife finds a husband and they're both very, you can say, not very religious. So that's what they looked for. I want the best model in town, you know, I want, you know, and then they get married and then one of them becomes religious and then they want the other to become religious as fast and it doesn't work that way always. So you have to strategize for the best possible ability, a best possible way for the both parents to come on the same platform and agree on certain things, have a negotiation, get somebody to counsel you, sort that relationship out. Otherwise it's going to give lots of problems to your children. Allah make it easy. I'm giving short answers, right? Number three, how do we explain to your spouse that Islamic values should take precedence over culture? I think the same thing that I said above. Same thing that I said. They should be listening to this talk, for example. They should maybe listen, because you telling them, and if they're sick of you telling them, have somebody else tell them. But you better do something about it. 
What advice would you give to parents of teenage girls that face peer pressure to use phones and social media apps as most children are talking about what happens on this app? And those parents whose children spend a lot of time on their phone using social media apps, how can we restrict them and what is a good explanation to them? You have to start this from beforehand so that they know that when they get social media, it's not uh, the harms. What I've done before is I've, uh, there's YouTube videos and uh, written research on the harms of social media the addictions of it, withdrawal symptoms. So if they don't want to listen to you, I say, look, read this. Watch this video or how these video games work. I remember there was an interview with the guys who were creating the sound effects of a famous video game. I forget which one. It was Fortnite or something else. The next one was going to come out. They had an interview. And they were showing how they go through so much testing and studies with the human mind to see how the exact sound effect and music will keep you on the balls of your feet, I mean, keep you active, not make you bored, not make you weary and tired, and keep you active, to keep you into it. There's a lot of psychology that goes into it. A lot of money is spent on doing that. It's not just random music or sound effects. It's to give you that adrenaline, that dopamine. So I think if your children are they, they should understand that. I've, we've explained to them how some of the big guys like your Bill Gates and others, uh, sorry, your, uh, these big social media uh, guys who created this, they don't let their children play on it. But you see, you telling them, well, you let them read this, let them watch a documentary, and hopefully that will help them and affect them in that right way. And we could maybe in masjids try to create uh, you know, more forums in which they can come and discuss these things and they can impart these things. How do you treat your children equally? You just treat them equally. Like, just don't treat them unfairly. Like, I mean, how do I answer that question? You know, when you give a general question like that, I can't answer it because I don't know what do you mean by equally. Like, just be equal. Like, what's wrong with you? I, I don't mean to be bad about this. What I'm saying is that when you, when you have a question like this, then give some more detail. Like, what do you mean? Equal in what? So uh, please rewrite your answer in more detail so I understand what you're talking about. Otherwise, I can't do justice to the answer. But all I can say is, don't be unfair. I'll give you one hadith. The Prophet ﷺ, there's one guy. He had some children from one wife, I think, and other children from another wife. So that one wife wanted, him, wanted that child to be given a very specific gift. So after they gave the gift, she said to the husband, I want you to go to the Prophet ﷺ and make him witness to this gift. Maybe. Right? I want you so the poor man he came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, I've given this child of mine this gift. I want you to bear witness. Now Prophet ﷺ probably figured it out. Right? There's some garbar, there's some problem. Right? So he said, Did you give all of your children? The same amount. He said, no. So he said, then why are you making me a witness to something which is unfair like this? Now, you are allowed to give if there's more need for a child. You are allowed to give. But if it's to deprive another one, then that is completely wrong. Your children, if they feel that you are doing favoritism, that is one of the most detrimental things that you could do. Your relationship will be messed up with that child. They will remember that. We have some weird cultural things, I'll tell you. A little kid five, six years old, an auntie will tell him as a joke that do you know that your mum is not your real mum? 
they found you and they're looking after you. I, I've had this experience with a few kids. It's so... Do you, do you understand this culture? Some people do this. It's detrimental. Don't do this kind of stuff. Then you'll say, oh, no, no, no I'm joking. It'll leave a scar. It will leave a doubt in their mind about this. Like, is that really my mom? Is that not my mom? Very dangerous. There's some really weird cultural things that we do sometimes. Another one. If you're misbehaving, Molly Saab ko bulayenge hum. Molbi Saab ko bulayenge. Wo aapki pitai karenge. I'm going to call the Molly Saab to beat you up. Very, very wrong. Because what you're doing is that you're making the Molly Saab a ghost or some kind of jinn or some kind of scary guy. That's why they don't like it when they come to the madrasa. Even the guy is so nice. The parents are making them into a bogeyman. Very bad. I don't think my parents ever did that. Understand? You're, you should never scare, uh, scare your children with religious people because you're frightened. Psycholinguistics. For example, I was speaking to my, I was in the masjid and uh, my child, young kid at that time, he'd brought a toy with him. So I was speaking to him in Gujarati at the time and the word I used for toy was in English. I said toys instead of the Gujarati word for it. So the whole conversation was in Gujarati, but the word for toy was in English. So I said toy in Gujarati. Apni toys ke saath khelo, like in Urdu, that's what you'd say. A friend of mine who's Syrian, he said, that's very wrong what you just did. I said, what do you mean? He said, what you're doing is you're associating fun things with the English language. I know this is getting a bit deep. But you're associating fun things with the English language, so they think that the English culture is more fun than your Gujarati culture or Urdu culture. So don't associate wrong things with wrong things. Another thing that I'd like to mention is that, you know, we use baby words for certain objects and certain things when you're like, dudu pilo. Would you say that to another adult? Thora dudu Do you understand? But you'd say that to children, like, dudu pilo. And you'd say, uh, do you know some other words like that? Is there any other baby words that... Dudu and what else is there? Okay, so you use... And that's fine, at a young age. We've hardly... We, we stop very soon. How long are you going to do this for? Until you become 10, 12, 15? You're still calling it dudu? Like, come on, let your children grow up. You know, don't keep them babies. And that's very important. Don't molly coddle them. Let them live in a way that they can sustain themselves. There's... Two families, their fathers are brothers and the mothers are sisters. Did you understand? Their fathers are brothers and the mothers are sisters. The one family, they used to let their children go out with a controlled environment, let them go out on their own. The other one didn't. Like, too protective. Molly called was sub, take them everywhere and, you know, not let them learn how to live on their own. And just a big difference in the way they were brought up afterwards. You have to give them some kind of independence and adulthood and responsibility. Very important. Don't bring them up as though they're princes and princesses. You understand? Like you just constantly tell them, you're a princess, you're a princess. It's a big harm. Or you're a prince. You know, because they might start actually thinking they are. But they've got no kingdom. They've got no throne to look for. <laughs> then they're going to have a rude awakening. Do you understand? Okay, uh, how do you treat your children? Okay, dealing with teenage girls, attitude, rudeness, it's tough. Because there's so much social pressure and they learn it from others. 
very tough. That's why you need to find them better friends, find others, uh, take them to some programs where they can learn these attitudes. There needs to be special classes that we organize for our teenage girls and boys beyond the local normal maktab um, until the age of 12, where they dealt with in a teenager, as a ad young adult, to become more serious. Do you know that one quarter of teenagers, especially the girls, they have mental health issues. They're suffering from mental health issues. The world is not giving them an easy way. They're promising them and enticing them with these things that are like what, how they should look, how they should smell, how they should appear, makeup, and uh, be with boys and all that stuff, which is unattainable. And they're really confused. Allah make it easy. How do you advise those youngsters who are far away from the deen? I need more detail. As I said, let's find... Uh, sometimes you just need to give them some time away and they'll eventually learn. I think I have noticed that if you've taught them well at a young age, they might still become corrupt when they become teenagers for some reason. They usually come back. But what I've noticed with those that who have not had a decent upbringing until the age of 9 or 10, or good maktab system, love of Allah, consciousness of Allah, then it's much more difficult because they've got nothing to come back to unless they get lucky and they get some good, mashallah, tarbiyah from someone. Um, sometimes when a child wants to come back on the straight path but their family is not supportive and live in a demotivating environment. Yeah, that's not very good. That's not very useful. That was just a comment. Allah Ta'ala make it better. Okay, any questions from you guys? Or are you leaving it to the women to ask the caller questions? I've dealt with all of their questions. Tika, that's fine. So just cross those out and send the rest. Or I'll do it. The naming of the child, yes. Find a name that is good in meaning, easy to say, and not so corruptible in the way people will say it. Personally, I would say avoid double names. Nobody uses them except the parents. I don't know. Muhammad Yusuf and then Ali, they have a surname as well. Nobody uses the double names. You find one good name and it's confusing. If you have a double name, constantly you have to write in every official, you have to write the whole thing. Some people call you the first name, some will call you the middle name or the second name or whatever. It's confusing. Find names with good meanings. Right? And don't try to find an exotic name so that they, uh, so you're trying to set them up to be the next YouTube star. A branding name. You know. I get, subhanAllah, I'll give you an example. The other day I got a call from a sister. She said that I'm having a child or whatever. I have a question about a name. I said, what's the name? He said, Isaiah. And it really ticked me off. Because I've had questions about somebody saying that, can we call her Hannah? instead of Hannah, because they want to kind of keep it close but anglicized so they can kind of fit in. But this one was really taking the mick. Isaiah instead of, instead of Ishya'a, which is the original Arabic. I'm like, where'd you get that name from? I found it somewhere. It just, why do you want to keep it? Oh, to make it easy for non-Muslims to say the name. I said, you're trying to make it easy for non-Muslims to say the name, but how do you think your own Indian Pakistanis are going to say that name? How would you say? Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah. Ziaul Haq. Do you understand? I said, what are you trying to do? I said, 
you know the problem with that name will be that when I hear that name, it just reminds me of the book of Isaiah. The biblical work. It's a biblical name. I hardly even see non-Muslims with that, Christians with that name. Very few. Why would you choose that name? There's an identity issue. You want your child to be constantly asked, are you Muslim? Because your name is Isaiah. Your name is Aaron instead of Harun. Okay, he's a convert. That's understandable. The guy is not a convert. You've given him Aaron instead of Harun. Like, why would you do that? Are you trying to be of another tribe? Are you trying to be of another, you know, another culture? So, yes, I understand. I mean, if you want exo- if you want unique names, I've got quite a few for you that were names of maybe Sahaba or Tabi'in or something like that. But don't just look online and people look online and they find the weirdest names, right? And they don't make any sense in Arabic or Persian or whatever. They, you know, you can find a good name, that's fine. But just be very careful. The Prophet used to change weird names to good names. Because names have an effect. Because you're constantly going to be called some, that name. And I think there's a subliminal effect of that. Well, that's a different issue where Aslam you know, likes to call himself Sam. And Muhammad suddenly becomes some Mo guy. Right? And uh, I don't know. I mean... I don't like that. You know, if you're trying to hide your identity, how far are you going to hide it? And what's the purpose of hiding it? We've seen the hypocrisy of the way they dealt with the Qatar World Cup. You know, I think there's, I hope that even many liberal people who didn't believe that there's any conspiracy or that there's, uh, you know, that there's sincerity, they would learn from the World Cup how much hypocrisy there is. Why did the BBC not show the opening, the opening ceremony of the World Cup? Why don't they show the players when they bow down, for example? Why are they critical? There was nothing good, even though majority of people are saying it's the best World Cup. You can see the hypocrisy. Nobody's going to be happy with you. And if somebody is, you'll be happy until your death. Then what are you going to do in the hereafter? Do something so that you're happy in this world and the hereafter. Jisab, next question. Yeah. Right. If you uh, for over 16s, if you can't travel and you can't find locally, then we have set up something for them called Rayyan Institute, Rayyan courses. Right. And what that does is it's got 30, 40 courses, short, short courses that they can take in their own homes, you know, at their own leisure, in their own time. There's like a certification process as well. There's one called the Islamic Essentials Program. Because you know, one is we do maktab. But now we want to learn the same things from an adult perspective while when we're adults. So Rayyan courses, Islamic Essentials Certificate, and then they've got others. You can take that, and that's what I would suggest. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion. The next step is to actually start learning seriously to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules and at the end of that, inshallah, you will have gotten the, the basics of 
uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind. You can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures, but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.